Welcome to the WEPC Discipleship Podcast, because the gospel changes everything. There we go. Now we're now we're cooking with grease. Uh, good morning. Uh, happy Reformation Day. On this day, 504 years ago, Martin Luther tacked the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. You want to talk about that? We won't talk about that. Um, so I. Uh, This week, we're supposed to be doing a red quadrant week, a heart week, which is going through the Loveless book. Uh, But we do need to finish looking at Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, which we did not get time to do last week because Glasgow had us spend too much time on Genesis. Uh, But um, uh, we are, I do want to talk about Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and then I do want to talk about the Loveless book, which is going to then bleed over into next week. Next week is a blue strength week where we're going to be talking about culture. And the, the, uh, if you look at the back of your handout, there's an article, I was discipled by the church. Uh, it's, it's a very short article. I mean, I think I even printed it out onto its front and back. I'm walking into the back right now because I thought I did. Maybe I didn't. Never mind. Uh, It's a very short article, um, and it talks about the the. It's a it's a new article that just came out last week. uh, Talks about why we need to be in church and the value of church and the loveless chapter. This chapter that we read for this week. Uh, it, it talks about that as well, the kingdom perspective. How many people actually read the Loveless chapter this week? Okay, a good number of y'all. Uh, how long did it take you? <laughs> a long time. It, it's, a, it's thick stuff. It's thick stuff. I, I fully acknowledge that. What'd you say? Small print, thick stuff. Yes. Uh, once we start unpacking it, it is... Uh, chock full of stuff that we're going to talk about today and next week, um, especially as it relates to uh, the church, what, you know, what the church is and why we should participate in it. So um, let's jump into it, into the book of Joshua. Uh, and you know what you remember last week we talked about, we're going not canonical order, but chronological order. And, you know, uh, Genesis is about the beginning. Job is a patriarch, which is you know right at the same time as Abraham, uh, and then Exodus, the great event that almost all Old Testament theology turns back to—that great Exodus event, crossing the Red Sea, and the the uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and then Leviticus and Numbers are uh, explanation of the time in the wilderness. So Leviticus is be holy because I am holy. And it's a lot about uh, how we should live in this kingdom, this Israel kingdom, uh, this Israel community and uh, the Levitical priesthood. Uh, and Numbers is in many ways, it's, it's weird because we don't really think of it this way usually, but Numbers is a book that is about preparation for war. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of what numbers is in this wilderness, it it starts in one generation and it ends in the second generation. Uh, And it gives a census at both ends. And it is telling them when you're going to go into the promised land, this is how you are to behave and this is how you're to conduct life. This is how you're to conduct everything you're going to be doing uh, when you take over the, uh, the promised land. Now, we know Deuteronomy is the last book in the Pentateuch, the last of the five books, but a lot, some people, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but some people connect Deuteronomy and Joshua together 
more than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy together. So uh, because Deuteronomy in many ways is the, we're at the very end of our 40-year wilderness, and Deuto, we talked about this, the second law, it is the re-ratification of the covenant of the new generation. So as Joshua is going in and leading the people of God into taking the promised land, they're not necessarily looking back all the way to the law that was given in Exodus. They're looking back to this ratification of the law in Deuteronomy. Does that make sense? You know, the, the Ten Commandments are listed where in the Old Testament? This is for Bible scholars. I know Chris knows this. Where can you read the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20. Exodus 20. And? Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. Yes, the Ten Commandments are listed twice because that's, it was given to the first generation and they failed. And they said, because, and God said, because of that, you're not going to the promised land. And then the new generation came in. Let's reiterate. Let's say again, this is what we're doing. This is what life will be like. And so then we get to Joshua. Uh, Joshua. Um, answer, Patrick. Okay, you get a few questions. Okay. So in the, in the four years that they were laughing Mount Sinai, um, was the law not taught at all, or did they not live by any part of that? Or was it not part of their when they're in the when they're in the wandering? Absolutely, it was it was definitely taught, and that's when we might even talk about it when we deal with Loveless, the tabernacle life, what tabernacle is, and there was plenty of law like that. Yeah, yeah, there was plenty of law. It's just. We're, re, we're re-ratifying it, the, the re-ratifying the covenant. It's not in, uh, we're going to get to this at a later week, uh, the, in covenant theology is different than dispensational theology. <clears throat> Joy loves when I use words like that. Where it's not like God said something here and then he says another thing and therefore the first thing is over. And then he says another thing and then this is over. And then he says another thing, and then this is over. You know, it's not that way. That is dispensational theology. That's like God said the world is going to live this way under um, Noah uh, and his children. And then he gave us Moses, and now the Noahic administration is over. That's dispensational theology. Covenant theology, as you guys know, says God says this thing, and then he clarifies it and makes it even clearer in another thing, and then he clarifies it, and he makes it even clearer in another thing, and it's all still there. So we'll talk about this later, but uh, everything God says in Genesis still applies to Israel covenant people life. Everything he says in Job and Exodus, you know, everything he says still applies. It's just, let's clarify it again. Very clear in Deuteronomy. This is how you are to live when you take the promised land. And so uh, in the interest of time, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but Joshua, as you know, is, who was Joshua? The son of Nun, N-U-N, a Hebrew uh, letter, not N-O-N-E, the son of nobody. Um, Yeah, Joshua, son of Nun. What else was he? What else do we know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of those uh, first few with Caleb, and they went over into the promised land and saw grapes the size of humans and other such things that were large. I don't, I'm not saying that's, that's true. Okay, okay. So Joshua was Moses' COO. Okay, I like that. That's good. Yeah, once Moses died, Joshua became the leader of the Israelites. And then you see in Joshua, uh, I, don't, I don't have it in front of me, but you see in Joshua the, um, the same thing happens with Joshua that happened with Moses, where uh, he, is, he crosses the Jordan to come in, just like Moses crossed the Red Sea. Uh, there's the reinstitution of the Passover, which Moses... Uh, had when he's crossing the Jordan, he took off his shoes, just like Moses took off his shoes at the burning bush. Joshua was the true successor to, uh, to 
Moses's leadership, because as we know, Moses could not go into the promised land. Um, and so Joshua is the story of the people of God taking possession of the land, the promised land. Uh, chapters 1 through 12, I think I put this in the handout. Chapters 1 through 12 is the conquest, the God's people uh, have victory. 13 through 22 is God's people receive their inheritance as a result of the victory. And then the last two chapters, covenant life in the land. Uh, now here's what, probably the big problem, this is what I'll end with Joshua on. We don't have to say too much about it, is the end of Deuteronomy, um, what happens? Moses dies, right? Moses dies. And there is very clear, as you guys were just saying, very clear instructions about his successor, who, jo- who his successor would be. It ended up being Joshua, right? So we just said, and I just said, and I firmly believe this, that Joshua is this next generation's Moses. Like he is the next generation's Moses. He is the guy that was taking the mantle, taking the leadership. And there's a lot of parallels between the life of Joshua and the life of Moses and the the biblical record of the life of Joshua and the biblical record of the life of Moses. The biggest difference is at the end of the life of Moses in the canon, we see who his successor would be. It's the institution of his successor being Joshua. The end of Joshua, there is no clarified successor to Joshua that ends up being a problem. So Joshua ends with no successor. And for all you biblical scholars, you know that the next book, Judges, is this a happy book? (laughs) It's not a happy book. You guys, you guys know this is the the, the time period that it's covering is the time of the end of Joshua's uh, leadership all the way to the institution of the monarchy. Um, Joshua 21:25. I'm just going to read it and not Joshua, Judges 21:25. Sorry, I'm losing my mind. Judges 21:25. This is that famous passage. Very end. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That statement, you guys who've studied Judges, that statement, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, is the statement that just is reiterated over and over and over again. This happens. So there's a cycle in Judges. I just think it's fascinating and interesting when you read Taking a text out of its context is a pretext for reading a text wrong. Uh, so when you read the Bible, you got to understand context, right? When you read Judges, when you read any book, but especially when you read Judges, you could come away thinking, oh, God really liked it when, um, when Jephthah said, uh, oh, I'm going to, I'll sacrifice my daughter when she comes out of the doorway and Jephthah kills his daughter when she comes out of the doorway. Do you remember this story? I'm, I'm, I'm messing up the story, but it was, uh, Lord, if you give us victory, the very first thing that, co- that I see when I come home, I will sacrifice to you. And his daughter comes out and he sacrifices her, kills his own daughter. Now, if you're reading the Bible, and you read just that verse out of context, what might you surmise? That God thinks this is okay to do, right? I mean, you might surmise that it's okay for Jephthah, the ruler. Like, he was one of the judges. He was one of the good guys. He came and he, uh, he murdered his daughter. And the Bible does not condemn it. Now, I would also say the Bible does not praise it. The Bible does not say that what Jephthah did was good, but it also does not come out and say what Jephthah did was bad. Because you got to understand, in context, the book of Judges. The book of Judges has a cycle, and you see this cycle very clearly 
and 2, 11 to 19. And I just want to read this because I think it's a helpful uh, summary of the entire book of Judges. This is Judges 2, 11 to 19. So in 11, uh, 11 through 13 says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, and that's Yahweh, the, the, the name of God. They abandoned the name of God, the God of our fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. All right, so what happens in those verses? Yeah, they, uh, they became apostate. They completely abandoned. I mean, it's saying over and over again, they said thanks, but no thanks to everything that you just said we should do. Joshua led us through great victory. We have the promised land. There's still plenty of um, uh, the, uh, the enemies, the Gentile nations around still in and amongst us. And we're going to go after them. They forsook, they abandoned the, uh, the, their God, the God of the universe. Verses 14 and 15 says this. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And every time I said Lord, it is in the covenant name of God. Uh, the covenant name of God is said over and over and over again in that passage. And so what happens in those two verses? So they for the, first the first few in 11 to 13, apostasy. What happens in... 14 to 15. Yeah. God's wrath is poured out. Apostasy, God's wrath is poured out upon them. A syntax question? Yeah. Is there any significance to he sold them versus he would have given them? Ooh, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Is there any difference between he sold them versus possibly he gave, had given them, he given them over. Sold, yeah, yeah. I was just uh, I've never, I have not thought about that, Glenn. That's an excellent question, and I would love to think more about that. But I do not know enough to say, other than it's a beautiful, horrifying image of God uh, giving people over and also uh, saying, you have declared you don't want anything to... To do with me, so I will give you over. I'll sell you over to the enemy. It's an excellent question. Um, and then finally, 16 to 19, this is where we see the rest of the book come in. Uh, 16 to 19 says this, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, they did, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so in all, you see these last, few, these last verses, he raises up judges, and you see the downward spiral. Judges, the best way to understand judges is a toilet. Uh, the people of God are going down the tubes, and each judge gets worse and worse and worse. The people of God are getting worse. Uh, Samson is a great story. 
<laughs> but such a horrible man, right? I mean, Samson was a horrible man. He was the last judge. There were 12 judges. Did I put this in the handout? Um, oh, yeah, it's all written in there. Yeah, there, um, the, uh, there were 12 judges, and they're all listed there. Some of them, there's a lot written, written about them, and some of them, there's just a, a, a quick passage. Um, but in, in short, the story of the people of God in Judges is a spiral down. And so uh, it ends, as I read already, the last verse of Judges, Judges 21-25, is they continued to do as, uh, oh, sorry, Judges 20, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in just a short uh, little interesting bit, we know this was written during the monarchy, or at least uh, one of the kings, because it says in those days there was no king, which implies that it was written during a time when there was a king. So in those days there was no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, looking forward to a monarchy, looking forward to a king. Uh, before there was a monarchy, the next book and the last book in, the, uh, in, the, in our chronology as well as in the canon is the story of Ruth. Now, if Judges was a terrible story, Ruth is one of the best stories. Ruth is such a great story. I think Ruth, and you know, I would hope you guys would as well. Um, Ruth is such a wonderful story. Uh, because it is about the great uh, redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. So, what do we know about Ru- what do we know about the person of Ruth? She's a Moabitess. Yeah, she was a Moabitess. She was a um, a Gentile. Daughter-in-law to Naomi. Yeah, d- uh, daughter-in-law to Naomi. D I L. To Naomi. Just call me bitter, Naomi. She was a widow. What else do we know about Ruth? She was a hard worker. What'd you say? She followed Naomi. Yeah. Yeah, uh, she followed. Yeah. Instead of instead of staying with Orpah, she followed Naomi um, into the land of Israel, and we get in the land of Israel uh, this story of Ruth and Naomi, and we see the story of um, the kinsman redeemer Boaz, who comes in and. Uh, purchases Ruth and Naomi out of abject uh, slavery or, um, or at least just poverty. And who do we know? Uh, what else do we know about Ruth? What else do we know about Ruth uh, after she's gone? Yeah, yeah. Ruth is, Ruth is a, you know, maybe the great grandmother to David. Uh, or at least, you know, great-great-grandmother, whatever it is, uh, of David, and in the line of Jesus, in one of the great genealogies of Jesus is Ruth's name, uh, which is uh, good to remember because Ruth is like a, it's a novella in the Bible. Like, it's a short little story. That's why a lot of people love to read it, because it's a short story. It's easy to, to sort of get, you could pull it out of the the uh, story of the people of God pretty easily, uh, and it, it communicates a lot of great things about it. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just stop talking about that. So we see the outline in there of Ruth. There's, there's plenty more I could say about it other than, but I think I just want to end with how of the, we see the kinsman redeemer, and we also see this uh, chesed love, the covenant love in Ruth come out very clearly. It is this, uh, this kindness. Boaz showed kindness. Um, 
And that is the story of uh, what, how our Redeemer, Jesus, shows us kindness. And when I say kindness, I'm not talking about the scout law. I'm talking about the way God communicates love to us is through his, uh, his kindness, his redemption. And so uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. I wanted to finish our story from last week about uh, the canon. Does any questions about the survey of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Ruth? Ooh, excellent question. Yes, the Levitical priesthood, uh, in many ways during the time of Judges, almost everything has been abandoned. Um, But uh, what we do see is that the tabernacle has... So remember when Joshua entered the promised land, he brought with him the ark, uh, and he brought with him... uh, And in the ark was the Ten Commandments, in the ark was... um, uh, the Aaron's budded staff and a jar of manna uh, reminding them of all the things that God has done for them. So the ark is there. Where is the tabernacle? We're not quite sure. We don't really know what happens to the tabernacle uh, after they cross over into uh, the promised land. But during the time of Judges, everything just sort of falls apart. Remember, it's in the toilet now. And so We know that the ark is around because when we pick up the narrative later in 1 Samuel, the ark is still there and we'll see what happens. But if without the tabernacle, what are the Levitical priests doing? Now, we do know they're still around because when we pick up the narrative in 1 Samuel, the Levites are still there. But that was not the... um, That was not the intent of the author of Judges to communicate what was happening to the Levites. Does that make sense? So we don't really know. That's a long ramble way to say, Gary, I have no idea. It's it's sort of implied, though, that that, that even the priests had fallen to laws. Without a doubt. Yes, thank you for saying that. Yes, Uh, everyone had been, had devolved down into terribleness. I mean, yes, you're, you're picking up the, the point that in Joshua, they did not follow God's commands as, well, as accurately as they should. But I would say it also began, you know, Genesis 3. Like, you know, the people never were wholeheartedly following God with their hearts, right? Um, and even this next generation were told, follow the, God, follow the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they still didn't. You're exactly right. They didn't follow all of God's commandments. They didn't, they didn't cleanse the promised land from every one of God's enemies. And so they were a thorn in the side of the people of God when they were in the promised land, which, as we just read, they really love to go after those idols. Um, good news is, is that those people love to follow idols. You and I, we don't. Okay, good job. That was a joke. That was a joke. Uh, Because that's what we're going to pick up now. This is what we want to talk about is uh, renewal as a way of life. Chapter two, the um, Richard Lovelace's next book. And I have a handout there, which mostly just is a, a little bit of an outline of the second chapter. And I will admit, I've told you guys this already, Lovelace is a hard book. I mean, he's, uh, it's, it's, there, it's hard to understand um, a lot of uh, what is discussed there. But what I would want to say, what I would want us to understand in, from this whole chapter is the difference between the, um, the holy and secular Uh, is the way you and I usually live our lives. And what Loveless is trying to communicate, what Loveless wants us to understand, is that everything is not that way, but everything is in a kingdom. So it's all about understanding God's 
kingdom. So in other words, um, I'm going to jump into my notes. In other words, what you and I love to do, and I think I put this on the handout, maybe at the very back of the handout. is our, the crea- yeah, the creation. Here we go. The creation of this perfectly, this is a quoting Richard Lovelace. The creation of this perfectly God-centered world is far beyond our power and skill. It requires the direct intervention of God in history, reconstructing our mortal bodies and releasing our planet from bondage and distortion, coming from 1 Corinthians 15.50. This release and reconstruction can only occur with the visible return of Christ and the creation of new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Even so, our very goal and action should anticipate this God-centered world. Everything we are and do should point to this coming realm and model it before the rest of the world. Christians should build straight houses in the midst of a world where crooked people are building crooked homes. They should run straight businesses and vote for straight government in a world where these structures are misshapen by human sin. Their lives should appear to the world as centers of divine righteousness, peace, and joy. Obviously, kingdom-centered living does not come easily. that's not exactly what I was, what I was uh, going to try to read at the time, but I'm just going to go with it because it's so beautiful, is that we live in a kingdom where, who is our king? Jesus is our king. So who is the head of the church? Jesus. Yeah, not Steve Shelby. Jesus. Uh, not the elders, but Jesus is our great king. Jesus is our great king. And In this kingdom where we live, we live in the kingdom of God, uh, we operate as, uh, you might be offended by this, but I'll write it anyway, vassals. This is how we operate. We operate as vassals, the people who serve the king. We operate as people who serve the king. Uh, What Loveless is trying to communicate in this is that uh, when we deal with the kingdom of God, usually we like to say that God's in control of the holy things and we are in control of everything else. So the way this happens for us Christians is we think about Christian things when we come to church, right? Or... I mean, I'm guilty of this. Like, I'm not trying to cast stones where I'm in a glass house, whatever. Um, Where I'll read my Bible. I'll read my Bible in the morning and pray. I'll pray in the morning. I'll do all of this stuff. I'll have a wonderful devotional life. I'll even work at verse memory because I'm really good. Um, And maybe even just so you guys will give me some props, occasionally I'll even fast. Wow. Wow. I'm really good. I'm amazing. And I will do these things in the morning. Maybe not fasting, but I'll do these things in the morning, and then I'll close my Bible. I'll say amen. And then what happens? Yeah. Then I go over here, and I'm in charge, right? And then I go over here and I'm in charge. I'm the one operating. You know, I would never say it that way. I would say, of course, Jesus is in charge. Of course he is. But I'm in charge. Like, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I think I should be doing. I've, I've prayed. I've given God his holy things. I've given God everything that I should give him for that day. And then I go about my own business. Has this ever happened to you? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, loving, this is uh, quoting Richard Levitt. This is the, the first quote on the handout. Loving obedience to God produces much more than individual goodness, respectability, 
and alleviation of suffering. It builds the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' preaching is much more centered on the kingdom and the way of life consisted with it than most current sermons. And again, this is written in the 70s, but I think it still applies to the 2010s, 2020s? Where, what are we? 2020s? I don't even remember. Uh, although he does continually stress the need for faith in his own power and authority, the same is true of the preaching of the apostles and acts. In other words, you know, what Jesus talked about all the time was not, you should go have a quiet time, you should go pray, you should go do all those things, and then go live your regular life. He's saying, it's the kingdom of God. He's saying, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first words that Jesus says as quoted in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. We should come in and enter into that kingdom of God. And that's why we see Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And what is one of the big first, um, I, I, I keep forgetting the word, but uh, one of the first petitions in the Lord's Prayer. What is the Lord's Prayer? Well, how does it start? Our Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus tells us this is how we should pray. I mean, it, it, he, he says, I mean, these, these are Jesus' words. This isn't my words. This isn't Richard Lovelace's words. These are Jesus' words. He says, when you pray, what should you do? You should say, our Father, hallowed be your name. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Be thy name. Like, let's make sure we're clear about who we're talking to. We're talking to our Father, not God, I mean, it is God, but he's not saying, like, call him God. He's saying, call him our Father, right? This is a family connection. Our Father, Jesus, Jesus' Father, our Father, may your name be hallowed. May you be glorified. And then the very first petition is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is all about the kingdom of God. We are essentially asking... I think I put this. We are essentially asking, this is a quote from Loveless, I don't think it's in the handout, uh, that the reign of God will advance in our lives and those of our neighbors throughout the world. He's saying that everything that we should be doing in life is about living this kingdom lifestyle. That's what it is. That's the chapter two of Richard Loveless's book is all about living the kingdom lifestyle. And there's a lot in there about the Old Testament images of the messianic kingdom, specifically of the tabernacle. The New Testament images of the kingdom of God and that, those quotes I just read about uh, Jesus saying about thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so, uh, what happened, at, we, just, we just did this uh, just moments ago. What happens at the end of Judges? I just read that verse twice. What happens at the end of Judges? Yeah, I did not plan it, but it is amazing how it's uh, matched up. Judges 21-25 ends with, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is Judges 21-25 right here. Everyone's just doing right, whatever is in your own eyes. And there was no king. There was no king. It was all about the people of God had their eyes off of the king and onto themselves. Uh, and we'll, when we pick up the biblical narrative, we'll see the people of God asking for a king because they realize there's something wrong. There's something missing here. So how does Christ execute the office of a king? This is Westminster Shorter Catechism 26. Anybody want to read that for us? It's on the handout right under Christ as king. Thank you, Jana. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending 
I mean, if there's, if I had time, and I don't have time, if I had time, I would want to us to just break apart that little short little question, those little passages about the things that Jesus does for us, that the great Messiah, Jesus, he is our king by subduing us to himself, by saying, you know, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our souls, bringing us as vassals to Jesus. We are saying he is our great king. He is bringing us in. He's subduing us to himself. And what does he do? He rules over us, right? He rules over us. How amazing is that, that Jesus Messiah rules over us and he defends us. He defends us. Anybody here need a defender? Yeah, yeah, every day. Uh, And in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. I love that the Westminster Divines wrote his and our. Because he could have just, they could have just written, you know, in restraining and conquering all of his enemies. He's the king. Like, I don't have enemies that are not his enemies. He doesn't have enemies that are not my enemies. You know, my enemies are his enemies because he's my king. So if Jesus is my king, then it's his enemies and it's my enemies. And so when I'm dealing with someone who is my enemy, actually that's Jesus's enemy. Uh, And if I'm dealing with someone who I think is my enemy, but I find out actually is not Jesus's enemy, then he's really not my enemy. Does that make sense? No, but made sense to me. Um, And so... Isaiah 32, I just think this is maybe my favorite picture in the Old Testament of a king. Not David, because he messed up, not Solomon. But Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 2. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Jesus is our king. The best way to live life is not living life wholly secular. The best way to live life under Jesus as a king is seeing that Jesus is our great rock and it casts a shadow. It casts a shadow. And when we live life in a dry and weary land, we should live right here. That's where we should be. Jesus is our rock. We live in the shadow, the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Jesus is such a great king. The people of Judges and you and I, sorry, you and I, we live a lot of our life out here. And then maybe we run and we, you know, like, okay, give us a little shade, but really... Jesus's shade also requires sacrifice. It also requires I'm living a little bit in his shadow. Well, all the glory is getting to Jesus and not to me. I like to get out here and get a little glory on my own. The kingdom of God, Jesus's kingdom, is one in which he declares he is the king. He deserves all the glory, but he is protecting us. He is uh, keeping us safe. Uh, And so... Uh, We talked about this a few weeks ago, this already not yet thing about kingdom, because this question, all of this brings up a question, which is, if the kingdom of God truly is, Joe, if you're saying that the kingdom of God is really what the Bible is trying to communicate, what Jesus is trying to communicate, then the issue is, well, if Jesus is king, why does not everyone know it? And why does the world really still suck in many ways? Why is it still broken? You know, like that if Jesus's kingdom was so great, then why is the world not so great? Does that make sense? Uh, That is a great question. So thank you for asking it. Uh, It's because the kingdom is coming, but it's not yet. So the kingdom is coming, and maybe, I didn't intend this, but, you know, last week, if you were up in worship, Steve was preaching about um, thirst after righteousness, 
And he so beautifully made the connection of it's not about uh, the righteousness, but it's about the thirst. Do you remember that? Uh, I, when he was saying that, I was like, oh, that's so great. Reminded me of what is one of the statements of Jesus as he hung on the cross. I thirst. One of the seven you know, holy statements that Jesus says on the cross is, I thirst. We live in this kingdom where we thirst. I'm just going to write that up. We thirst. We thirst when we are out here or when we're right here. We're thirsty. It's a dry and weary land. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. Uh, and God as our rock is giving us that. And I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote down some things here that I think are helpful about Jesus' kingdom is already but not yet. We are already adopted in Christ, but we also still wait for the full adoption. We already are redeemed in Christ, but we also wait for the full redemption of our bodies and souls. We are already sanctified, but we are being sanctified. We're saved and we're being saved. We are raised with Christ, and yet we are not yet raised fully all the way. Uh, When we talk about Everything in, and what, what Loveless is going to do through the rest of the book is unpacking this chapter about the kingdom of God. So the rest of the book, in many ways, is about how we live in this kingdom of God. We don't live in the holy, secular dichotomy. We live in the kingdom of God. Um, and I, I'm saving a lot of stuff on this chapter for next week because uh, it's it's connected. But I will say this, if you flip over on your handout um, to the, uh, some of these quotes, I put too many quotes on here. I apologize, guys. Um, the people of God, oh yeah, he was talking about the history. And this is what happened in the history of the church is the, pe- the people of God in the history of the church after Jesus's ascension and we were left with the apostles and their teachings, the people knew this to be true, but they didn't understand how to do it. They didn't understand what that meant really because the kingdom is already, but not yet. And so one of the things that happened is monasticism. And we talked about this when we were going through our grid on week one, is that some people love solitude, right? Shane does. I know he does. Yeah. You just want to be alone with Jesus. How many people here like to go on spiritual retreats? Just you and the Lord. I do. I love that stuff. That's amazing. Uh, If you've ever been to Roslyn Center, it's an Episcopal retreat center. We we take some retreats down there and, uh, you know, just go out to the woods and you, you, uh, commune with creation and commune with God by looking at creation and you see all these great things. But what happened in monasticism is that, and this is reading the quote from Loveless on page 50 on the top of the second page of the handout, the people of God were left to choose between normal Christian living, this is normal Christian living, you and me in normal Christian life at a very subnormal standard, or the way of spiritual perfection, this stuff over here, what the, what the monks were doing in a monastic movement was, that was deeply dedicated but removed from culture and society. The monks and nuns presented a model other Christians admired but did not often imitate. And I would say, friends, I mean, that's, that's what I want to talk about next week is why we want this, but we live here how do we get them together? Does that make sense? And so next week, when we talk about that article, I was discipled by the church, and um, I'm actually going to take a lot from this new book by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman, Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. It just came out uh, a couple months ago, and it's really good, uh, and a lot in there about COVID-19, because we want to be here, but we're here and how do we mix them? And the Roman Catholic Church came up with an idea. Protestants came up with an idea. We should come up with Jesus's idea and see what God has to say about how we actually sneak preview. We don't do that. We just try to figure out how to do this. Does that make sense? We don't, we don't try to say, okay, well, let's like have a secular life and just add the holy to it. 
um, or we should be a holy life and just add secular to it. Um, some people have tried to do that. You and I try to do that. Uh, what we should do instead is how to live as a kingdom. So the question for next week is that we're going to discuss is how do we live a kingdom lifestyle specifically in a post-COVID-19 world? That's going to be our question. Specifically in a post-COVID-19 world, or maybe just the situation we're in right now, how do we live a kingdom lifestyle in a post-COVID-19 world? Uh, so start getting your thoughts together about those, uh, about that question. Can I ask a question that maybe you answer next week? Yeah. Out of the book on page 56. Yeah. Next to the last paragraph. They're talking about the spiritual versus secular life in America. Yep. About the time of the Civil War. Yep. Yeah. Despite the fact that the church relied on spiritual influence and not political establishment to transform the culture. I do not. <laughs> uh, let's talk about that next week, Len. Let's talk about that next week. But uh, yeah, I, I'll make a note where we can discuss that. And I think it is going to be, we, we need to talk about how we live a kingdom lifestyle in specifically America. Uh, and uh, if you don't, understand Alexis de Tocqueville, you don't understand America, so we need to, we, we should talk about that. Um, and we'll talk about that next week. Jana? Going back to our Old Testament survey that we just did, we asked who Joshua was. Yeah. I heard that he was Moses' shadow. Moses' shadow! He drew the post of shadow. Yes. Yes. I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. Thank you for saying that, Jana. Um, any other questions, comments, jokes, I've heard others anecdotes? describe us as it, with another word that, is, that has tones to it, and that is uh, we are Jesus' slaves. We are Jesus' slaves. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to... We have things to do. Yeah, no. The, um, we, have, we have a call that we have things we need. Mike? We are Jesus' slaves. That is uh, somewhat offensive, but... St. Paul said it in the Bible, so we can go with that. Uh, but we, need, we, should, we should clarify what that means. Uh, uh, <laughs> happy slaves, happy slaves. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. So let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll go. Lord God, thank you for, well, our Father. who Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, uh, go in peace. Happy Reformation Day. See you next week. <laughs>